Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare. PNC, grow up great. New Jersey Sharing Network. Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. Valley Bank. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Johnson & Johnson. United Airlines. Connecting people, uniting the world. And by ADP, always designing for people. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by Jaffe Communications, supporting innovators and changemakers with public relations and creative services. Welcome to Think Tank here on News 12 Plus. By the way, Nicole Swinerton, our co-anchor and senior producer of Think Tank here on News 12 Plus. When can folks find us on News 12 Plus? They may be watching on Sunday at 10.30, but when's the other time? Yep, you can watch us Sundays at 10.30 in the morning and also Monday nights at 10 p.m. That's right, the Monday nights on News 12 Plus. By the way, some of the great programming on News 12 Plus. But speaking of this program, you're about to meet uh, Tom Bergeron, owner and editor of ROINJ, a great media uh, information source, and also Assemblywoman Ileana Pintermarin, who is the chair of the state legislature's budget committee in the Assembly. Talk about the fiscal problems New Jersey has in the age of COVID. A $10 million borrowing plan by Governor Murphy. How the heck are we going to pay that back? We'll talk about that. And also Micheline Davis, our good friend uh, from RWJ Barnabas Health, talking about institutional racism, an anti-racism initiative at RWJ Barnabas Health, and frankly, something called social determinants of health. Um, I've covered pretty much what we have on the program, right? That's right. We can uh, thank some of our sponsors who have been supporting this program. We would love Let's to thank that. the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined childcare, PNC Grow Up Great, Seton Hall University, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Also want to thank the Sharing Network, Valley, Bank, J&J, &J, United Airlines, and uh, ADP. Good stuff. So, Nicole, let me ask you, biggest takeaway for you when, it, when we're talking about, there's so many different segments here that we did, but when it came to the Bergeron segment, talking about democracy at a crossroads, which is a new initiative we have, what got your attention? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Tom talks a lot about um, how if we look at New Jersey, uh, the Republicans here in the state, uh, not too many of them have really been encouraging the president to accept the outcome of the election. President Trump, we're forward. taping this in, in right. December. What we were talking about is, hey, look at the Republicans. Why aren't they saying Biden's the president? Reluctant. Not sure why that is, but it matters. Right. So yeah, it really does matter because we all should be coming together to uh, for this peaceful transition of power to move on to the next administration. And it's just interesting to see um, how, how many people really are reluctant to do so. Democracy at a crosswords. This is Think Tank. That's Nicole. I'm Steve. Check it out. Hi, I'm Steve Adubato. Welcome to another compelling program when we look at important public policy issues. 
We kick off once again with our good friend Tom Bergeron, the editor and owner of ROINJ, one of our media partners. You'll see their website up throughout this segment. Hey, Tom, um, we're starting this series called Democracy at a Crossroads. Sounds abstract, philosophical, theoretical, but it's not. The question really is, in my mind, in the minds of many, in the post-election of 2020, Washington and here in New Jersey, how is democracy functioning and getting things done versus some other thing going on that's really not very productive? Well, in a lot of ways, democracy isn't getting done. I mean, the, the two parties are split like ever before. Um, I think you see that playing out in a number of ways. You know, one of the key things to think about is to start the conversation, you have to say this, both sides do it. So no matter who has the upper hand, who's in charge, who's not in charge, it's the same arguments that go back and forth. It's almost laughable when you look at it. So start by not letting anyone take the moral high road will help. Um, and then we have to find ways to bring people together. And I think there's different ways to do that, but it all goes down to, to voting in the elections. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because whether it's ROI or any of the other media uh, or digital informational platforms in the state of New Jersey, helping us understand the legitimacy or believing in the legitimacy of elections and voting, vote by mail, et cetera. That's huge time. If we don't believe in elections and voting, then and I'm not trying to be negative, but what are we talking about if one guy wins, another woman wins? No, nope, we didn't win. It's not really real. Then why would people continue to have trust in voting? Yeah, and, and look, this goes back to what I was saying where both sides do it. And I have, What's the it? Tom, I have saying the, it. They both do it. Well, they, they both question, they both use the same arguments. They both use to try to take the same one-upmanship and the same higher ground. Um, look, I have no dog in the fight, but take a look at Same here. Trump right now, not in any way being interested in recognizing the fact that he lost the election. Disgraceful, bad for, for democracy, bad for everything involved. That being said, his side will say, well, look, they, they did it to me. People constantly questioned whether he won and whether, and, and when people bring up the the overall vote on, well, you didn't win the vote total, you won the electoral college vote. Well, yeah, okay, that's great. But my argument back and forth, and again, I have no argument on whether we should use the electoral college or not, but we do. So when someone argues that someone didn't win the popular vote, I say that's like a baseball game and saying at the end of the game, we're going we're gonna to declare the winner because I had more hits than you. No, you win by who gets the most runs. In the presidential election, you win by the electoral college. Everybody knew the rules going in, so why would you try to delegitimize it afterwards? So we're taping on December the 8th that we've seen after that. So go back to New Jersey. There are a lot of New Jersey Republicans, Jack Cittarelli, former Governor Tom Kane, who I have great respect for, Senator Tom Kane, and a range of other Republicans. As we tape this program, I don't know, they don't seem to be recognizing Joe Biden as the person who's going to be president. These are credible Republicans. Here's my question. It's not political. It's more policy and about democracy. If credible Republicans whom we respect don't acknowledge who wins the election, then what happened? Then where is the far right and the people who really believe in Trump in the effort to come together and move forward and solve our problems, whether coronavirus, infrastructure, energy, climate change, et cetera? Well, look, first, you have to reshape the question is what I would say. Do what do you mean? Don't say whether somebody is going to legitimize a result or credible or this and that. 
the answer, the, the, the grounding background uh, reason for every, every decision that comes out of a politician's mouth is what's going to help me win the next election? What's going to help me feed my base? So you start with that idea, and it's not so much that one side is trying to delegitimize the other side. It's what do I need to do to increase my, my base? Um, you've seen the studies coming out. I think the Washington Post did it last week where they asked every Republican official who won the presidential election, and a very small percentage would admit that Joe Biden won. Now, again, they're only doing this because they're, they're appealing to what their base and what they think it is. And, and that's one of the problems is nobody wants to compromise. Nobody wants to come together. Um, there's no Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan. There's no Newt Gingrich, Bill Clinton anymore. It's one side has to bury the other. And whenever you have extreme rule on one side, things don't work well. I mean, that's the way the country was set up 250 years ago. Bring it back closer home in New Jersey. Is New Jersey different with Governor Murphy, a Democrat, Steve Sweeney, a Democrat, different kind of Democrat, uh, Craig Coughlin, the Speaker of the House, Speaker of the Assembly. Is there less gridlock and more cooperation to get things done? And is democracy working better, <clears throat> representative well, democracy in New Jersey? Go ahead. Let me ask you this question. So Murphy's been in office for three years. And in the year prior to coming into office, he stated how he wanted medical marijuana and cannabis and recreational use to come to the state, something that the state is overwhelmingly in favor of, something that his party is overwhelmingly in favor of. Yet here we are three to four years later, and they're just now reaching the end zone on getting a policy in. And they, quote unquote, control everything, right? They have the assembly, they have the Senate, they have the governor. But Democrats. The Democrats do. And, but they still can't get to the finish line. And this leads to the idea of when you have too much power, when there's not a check and balance, you're actually, I think, you're paralyzed and you can't get as much done because when you have to compromise, as Christie had to do with Sweeney, more can get done because now you can go back to your group and say, look, we got A and B, but we didn't get C. But this is what we had to do to get it done. And right now the Democrats can't do that. Uh, final question before I let you go. The role of those of us in media, particularly local New Jersey-based regional media, what is our role in helping, quote, democracy function more effectively and holding our elected officials accountable? Look, particularly the, biggest ROI. Thing, the biggest thing that we can do is give a voice to a lot of different opinions. Now, it doesn't mean you have to give a voice to every opinion and, and crackpots on both sides, right? Because then, then you're giving them a little too much legitimacy. And that's where we get into trouble on when we get to make that decision. But you have to do your best to balance, to get a Republican, to get a Democrat, to get uh, uh, someone who wants to raise taxes, to get someone who wants to lower taxes. Let them express and let them go with it and try to let the viewer decide and see all the information. Um, we get to be gatekeepers. It's just the way it works. We try to, to keep it straight and narrow, but we ultimately have to make decisions. The ability for us to let as many people into the party and as many views there will ultimately help democracy. By the way, check out ROI to find out down the middle, no horse in the race, no bias, if you will. Tom's not expressing his view um, unless he's writing an editorial and he tells you that. He's the owner and he's the editor, Tom Bergeron of ROINJ, to disclose one of our media partners. Tom, thank you so much for a compelling conversation again. Check in with you soon. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Happy holidays. Same to you. They were taping right before the holidays. You'll see it after. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media.
We are honored to be joined by State Assemblywoman Ileana Pinter-Marin, who is chair of the Assembly Budget Committee. And um, thank you for joining us again, Assemblywoman. Thank you for having me, Steve. We're taping on the uh, 17th of November. We'll be seeing after that <clears throat> into 2021. Describe the community you live in and you represent and why it's so vulnerable to COVID. So first of all, Steve, let me tell you, um, I love my community. Uh, I love being, uh, I was born and raised in the Ironbound and I still live here. I think that um, my community with COVID has been terribly affected. Um, it's a community where um, we really are a, a self-service community in the sense that we're really, we're working at the restaurants, we're working at the laundromats, we're working at a lot of areas in the supermarkets that are essential. Um, that has been throughout this crisis. Um, I have a community that um, is largely un uh, undocumented as well. Um, and I have a community where you have multiple families living in one apartment. Um, but it's a beautiful community, right? Um, we're Portuguese, Hispanic, where everything that you can think of under the sun. Um, and I think that's what really makes the Iron Bound so special. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've had some terrible incidents with quite a few families getting sick. Um, and I hope that 2021 will be better for us all. And by the way, for those who are watching us, not just throughout New Jersey, but throughout the uh, multi-state region we're seen in, uh, it is the Ironbound section of Newark, a, a long-standing, proud community that um, has survived some very challenging, tough times. My son, oldest son, Stephen, happens to live uh, right off of Ferry Street um, and loves the community. But let me ask you this, Assemblywoman. You're also the, one of the chief financial um, gurus, if you will, in the state legislature when it comes to how we deal with our economic situation. Question, what do you believe the long-term implications and the impact of COVID will be on the New Jersey revenue situation? So, um, you know, we were having a great year in the beginning of 2020, right? We, um, we were seeing revenues coming in very strong. Um, we were very happy with some of the things that we had instituted and some of the programs. Um, and then all of a sudden, it's like we had the floor uh, crumble underneath us. Um, you know, we still saw some strong uh, sales revenue coming in throughout the last couple of months. Um, and I've, I'll be quite honest with you, Steve, there's no way that I thought that in early November, we were going to see this spike happening at this point. We were all talking about, you know, flu season. Flu season's really just getting started. So I'm quite wary of what January and February are gonna look like to us. Um, normally December is a strong, strong month for us at the, at the state uh, with regards to sales and revenues coming in. Um, so I am going to be very cautious. I was much more optimistic up until now. I'm gonna be very cautious as to what our December is gonna look like. And more so, I think, our January and February months. Um, and that was why this past budget cycle, um, we had to make sure we had enough cushioning in there to get us through these next couple of months. You know, Assemblyman, I've talked to you about this before, and I want to bring it up again. Uh, we're involved in an initiative relating to more affordable, accessible child care. Uh, the initiative right now is called Reimagine Child Care. With all the fiscal challenges, <coughs> excuse me, in the state, there's been a significant amount of money allocated to 
increasing the amount of affordable, accessible childcare, and you've been a, a leader in that effort. How important is, particularly during this pandemic as we move forward, affordable, accessible childcare? Steve, it still continues to be a big problem. I think we all know that. Um, I was glad to see that the state stepped in with some federal help with regards through DCF um, and the Department of Human Services and kind of reallocating some money. Um, but you see that even with these restrictions, it's been more important so now than ever because it's very tough to, to really provide great child care. Um, and when you're limited in your resources, when you're limited in your capacity of intake of kids, but still need to maintain state standards, um, it's becoming even more challenging to make sure that our child centers survive. Um, and I think that that has to be a priority moving forward even for the next, the next budget cycle. Assemblyman, help people understand the connection between quality and affordable child, child care and people working and paying taxes and being productive citizens. Some of us potentially take it for granted, but most cannot and do not take it for granted. Listen, I say it all the time. I am extremely fortunate. I have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, my parents help me out tremendously when it comes to childcare. Um, I know what some of my friends are paying. I know what some colleagues have paid in the past. And I know what some of my families that are working for are paying to try to um, have their children be in a safe place, but yet make sure that they can provide food on the table. And we know that there's some difficult decisions that are being made even today. Do I go to work? Do I pay my rent? Or do I pay for my childcare in order to be able to work and pay for my rent? Um, and parents shouldn't be faced with this. Um, it's 2020, we're moving on to 2021. You would have thought that by now we've kind of had this figured out, but we don't. It's still a tremendous challenge. Um, and it's one of those top issues. Parents cannot go to work and have a productive work day if they understand and they know clearly that they don't have a place to have their children in that's safe and equitable. And disproportionately, the problem, the challenge, the conundrum falls on women. Yes, yes. You know, I think we were making such strides as women, um, not only at the state, but at national level. And Steve, I have to tell you that it's very worrisome uh, moving forward that a lot of these challenges, not only financially, um, but professionally, and I want to say mentally, what a challenge it is for us as working mothers to be able to provide um, both financially and be able to provide our children with a safe place. Someone, before I let you go, real quick, got a minute left. Um, debt, borrowing, record amount of borrowing going on in the state right now. The governor has argued, and the, obviously the legislature approved, even though many Republicans oppose this. The governor argued that these are extraordinary times, drastic times, and they call for an amount of borrowing that's unprecedented. Tell folks in the minute we have left why that's a correct position. This is Steve, as you're going to see that this is going to get worse before it gets better. I think that we had to make sure that we had enough cushioning in there to get us through the next couple of months. But I want to say one other thing. People forgot how difficult it was for us to get out of the recession under the Christie administration. We needed to maintain and needed to make sure that our people are working and need to make sure we had a certain number of spending in there in order to make sure that people are working and providing for their families. Yeah. 
Assemblywoman Ileana Pintamarin, who is the chair of the uh, State Assembly's Budget Committee, also representing uh, the 29th Legislative District. Assemblywoman, Assemblywoman we want to thank you for joining us. Best to you, your family, and all of your constituents. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back after this. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. We are now joined by Micheline Davis, Executive Vice President and Chief Corporate Affairs Officer, RWG Barnabas Health. How are you doing, Micheline? I am well, my friend. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Listen, we've talked about so many different um, aspects of healthcare, but this a little bit different because there's a new publication that's out as we're doing this program at the end of October. It'll be seen after. Changing missions, changing lives, um, how a change agent can turn the ship and create impact. What's it all about? You co-authored this with Barry Ostrowski, who leads RWJ Barnabas Health. Absolutely. Uh, my president and CEO, we, we wrote it together. Steve, thank you so much for asking the question. It is always an honor to be here. It is really about uh, providing a pathway, uh, a blueprint for change agents in other organizations to best understand uh, really what our journey has been like to date. Back in 2016, the corporate board of RWJ Barnabas Health was good enough to uh, acquiesce to us launching into an initiative that was more than just nonprofit healthcare system community benefit. Rather, we wanted to make certain that we went way upstream in order to affect the systems and the structures, which really create the structural inequities within communities that make them ill, right? That keep communities from being healthy and strong. Our entire framework for social impact and community investment is a policy-led health equity framework, right? It means that we address something called the social determinants of health, those factors outside of your clinical setting that most affect and, and impact your health outcomes through an equity lens, right? Go back, so we, Micheline, sorry for interrupting. Let's remind folks of some of the social determinants of health. Go ahead. Absolutely. So social determinants of health are, are uh, food insecurity, whether or not you have access to fresh, nutritious, affordable uh, uh, organic food. Um, another one is transportation. Lots of individuals lack uh, easy, accessible, affordable transportation to get back and forth to both work as well as to a doctor's visit. The next is actually also um, economic um, uh, factors. So that includes, quite frankly, work, as I just described, right? Are you, in fact, in a job which actually earns upwards towards a livable wage? Right? Or are you a part of the Alice population, asset limited, income constrained, but employed? Are you a member of the working poor community? Right? Um, uh, another is housing. Right? It's incredibly important that you live in safe, healthy, affordable housing. Right? So our stats in this state, the 14th wealthiest state in the country, indicate actually that there's a great majority of individuals who are actually house burdened. Right? They pay over 30% of their income towards living. Right? And so as a result of this, we want to make certain that we are, are not just saying, here, come to our hospital so that we can take care of you, but we're also going out into the communities in order to really work with community members to co-design what they feel that they need and data proves that they, that they require in order so that everyone can grow up healthy and strong. Not just some, not just those who can afford it, right. not just some who, who look a certain way or come from a particularly educated background, but everyone. You know, Micheline, this book, you know, it is a blueprint, but it's also a challenge. Is it, in fact, 
as I interpret it, and by the way, uh, Micheline Davis is a board member, a board of trustee member of the Caucus Educational Corporation, RWJ Barnabas Health, uh, a significant underwriter of our work. This appears to be a challenge to other organizations to go outside the paradigm, outside the lanes, if you will, of what they're blocking and tackling is supposed to be and saying, wait a minute, what is your larger social responsibility, particularly in these challenging times with the racial and structural inequities that have been going on forever, mean to people who are suffering and struggling? A long-winded question I know is, is it a challenge? Absolutely. Listen, it's, it's, a, it's a charge. It's a call to order. It's a, this is what we've decided is going to be our pathway. What is going to be yours? It's a, no longer can you just merely cut a check to a something, but quite frankly, when are you going to come out of your ivory tower to cherish the lived experience of those in the communities that we claim we want to help? and aid and assist, realize that these communities are asset-packed, right? They are not just poverty-stricken or disenfranchised or marginalized. They are asset-packed with individuals who have lived experience and have weathered, right, all of that marginalization and disenfranchisement and under-resourcing, but that all of those things has happened for as a result of something, right? No one wakes up early in the morning and says, yes, good morning, I want to be the one born into poverty, right? That's not how it works, Steve. And so we got to be able to go further into this space in order to charge others to, to come forward to do this, because quite frankly, as we look at it through a lens of health equity and the quest to eliminate, not just reduce, health care disparities, what we acknowledge is two things. One, we can't do it on our own. And two, no one can do it sitting in an ivory tower, right? So we've got to make certain that we're going way upstream to change the system and the structure that impacted the area that we seek to, to make better now. You know, this, this book, Changing Missions, Changing Lives, written over a period of time, co-authored by you and, and Barry Ostrowski, to what degree do you take COVID into account in this book? So it's really interesting that you say that. This was certainly uh, written and uh, before COVID. That's why uh, I'm onset. saying it. Absolutely. But again, right, the entire book is about dealing with change. The entire book is about how we need to ensure that we are nimble in our mindset and, and reflective of what is going on around us. The fact that just because you have a, a protocol, a policy, a practice in place, that if in fact it is not cognizant of everything around it, right, then it is immediately stagnant and stale and you've got to pivot, right? So truth be told, I actually think that the book could be a, a very positive tool because it's two leaders. Now, now hear this, Steve, right? It's not to just presidents and CEOs, it's not just to executive vice presidents, it's to those who feel the call to leadership at any rung of the ladder throughout their organizations of any size. My book, Lessons in Leadership, that you know very well, the follow-up, written five years ago, the follow-up to it is a book that Mary and I, Mary Gamma and I are going to be writing in the next six months called Lessons in Leadership, Innovation and Disruption in the Age of COVID and Beyond. Now, why do I mention it? Because it strikes me that this initiative that you're talking about, this commitment uh, that you and Barry and your colleagues are involved in, is a great example of innovation. Because the healthcare, taking care of people when they come to the hospital, that's what you do. Innovation is social impact, examining social determinants of health. I'm not saying you're the only ones doing it, but you are leading the way. I, I don't want to make this into a commercial, but is this a classic example of innovative leadership? 
Steve, first of all, thank you. Yes, um, uh, it's, I'm okay with the commercial. Here's the rub, right? So the difference about our work is that it is policy-led through an equity framework. I am fully convinced that you cannot address the social determinants of health if, in fact, you do not apply a racial equity lens. If, in fact, you do not study why it is that these things exist, and I'm not talking about behavioral modifications, I'm talking about go all the way back to the 1934 Fair Housing Act. Understand about the fact that, that redlining is real, Go back well, and view for the those who watch record. right now. Say redlining. What is Michelin? Oh my goodness! Google so redlining, and what banks and what government policy did to decide who would live where and who couldn't live there. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Micheline. Well, Google, in addition to that, predatory lending practices and right disenfranchised communities, right? Really understand that this was banks and government together, right? Understand that so much of the history of how certain laws and policies came about were really conditioned on ensuring that certain groups were kept out, right? Go back and look at land grants and how That's they right. even got passed, right? So you can't address these issues unless you look through that lens. And that is what is unique about the way in which we do our work. The book, Changing Missions, Changing Lives, the co-author is Micheline Davis and Barry Ostrowski. Micheline, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Be well. I'm Steve Adubato. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the Turrell Fund, supporting reimagined child care. PNC, Grow Up Great. New Jersey Sharing Network. Seton Hall University. Valley Bank. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Johnson & Johnson, United Airlines, and by ADP. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network, and by Jaffe Communications. This is the Seton Hall story, one that comes to life every day on our campus. This is the place where great minds discover, innovate, collaborate, and find their true calling. This is the place where passion has a purpose, where learning inspires leading. The bonds we make, the values we teach, inspire our community to take heart and take action. This is Seton Hall University. This is what great minds can do.